Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Synergy Cast. Hope you all are taking care and being safe in these times. Um, today, I am really, really excited to share with you all a conversation I had with one of my dear and good friends. Um, we actually met. Uh, at Loyola University when we both were studying undergrad there. So uh, this is somebody, this guest is somebody that is very near and dear to my heart. Uh, She is a very, very good friend of mine um, and also a, um, just a, a very insightful and intelligent and passionate person. So I'm really excited to share with you all uh, the conversation that we had today. Um, So, I'll give a little bit of introduction on the guest. So, the guest today is, her name is Hannah Kelly, pronouns she, her, hers. And like I mentioned, she's one of my good friends from Loyola. So, uh, we met uh, our freshman year, so I've known her for about five years now. Uh, Like me, she also got her undergraduate degree from Loyola. Um, Unlike me, she studied political science uh, in undergrad, so she has her degree um, in political science from Loyola University of Chicago. Um, After graduation in 2018, she moved back to California, where she is from. Uh, She was born and raised in California, in Southern California. Um, and she will speak a little bit about that. Uh, you'll hear in the conversation we had. Um, so uh, after graduation, she has moved back to California um, and she has been working in politics in the city of Los Angeles for two years now. So that's a little bit of background about Hannah Kelly um, and she will talk a little bit more about that. Um, She also identifies with the LGBTQ plus community, so um, you'll hear her speak a little bit about some of her uh, perspectives and experiences um, being a part of the LGBTQ plus community as well. Um, And yeah, so um, basically what she has been doing is she's been working in politics in LA and she's worked for political campaigns. So. yeah, it's like politics is not something that I know much about at all. So I'm really, really happy to have her as a guest on today. And also, if you want to, um, you know, reach out to her, she um, mentioned a few of her social media sites that she would be open to having people um, following or looking into uh, if you want to learn more about her or reach out to her. Um, so her Instagram is at Hannah G. Kelly, and her TikTok, which she's actually pretty semi-TikTok famous, Um, her TikTok is at HG Kelly, and her Gmail is hannahgkelly486 at gmail.com, and I will be um, putting all of this information into the episode notes, and also on the Instagram if you're following that. I will be tagging all of her social media and her email in that as well. So thank you guys for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. So I also wanted to go ahead and give you all a little bit of uh, intro on what to expect if you choose to listen on to this episode. 
Hannah and I had a conversation about the events that are going on in the world around us, um, which if you are not keeping up with the news, um, which I think is pretty hard not to, but uh, just in case you are not aware with what is going on in the world, right now we are experiencing the protests and the acts of resistance um, as a part of the Black Lives Matter movement that is going on right now, um, which is occurring due to the aftermath of the murders uh, by police of um, Black people, including Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, um, and these are just the three most recent cases that we even know of. So that is what you can expect if you choose to listen on to today's episode. We will be discussing a lot about the political climate that is going on right now, um, what is going on with the protests, with the Black Lives Matter movement, what that means to us, um, and what that means to me as a, a person of color that uh, is from a South Asian background. Um, so... Uh, you know, obviously, even as a person of color, I cannot even begin to uh, understand what it's like to be black or, um, you know, what it's like to experience um, living as a black person in uh, the U.S. today. So um, it's, um, you know, it's a conversation that was it is tough to have. But I think that these conversations, although they are tough, they are very necessary. Um, so I really thank Hannah for coming on here and having these discussions with me today. Um, so me as a South Asian person uh, coming from a South Asian cultural background and then Hannah um, uh, is a white person, um, you know, so uh, having this, having these conversations um, is really important. So we talk a lot about uh, what it means to have privilege and what it means to uh, be a white person and to have white privilege. Um, so Hannah will share a little bit about that as well. So again, thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. And uh, please, please take care of yourself, uh, especially if you are if you are a person of color listening to this. Um, you know, some of these things can be very, very difficult to listen to. Um, but again, I, I strongly believe that they are very necessary. So um, please take care of yourself if you need to uh, while listening to this episode. Um, but yeah, thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the episode. And then like there's been protests happening in LA. So like everyone's been talking about that and it's been kind of crazy. I mean, I'm not going to lie, but um, I know they've been happening in Chicago too. Probably like in downtown, right? Yeah, like nothing Nothing is happening here on the north side because I feel like the north side is just like mainly filled with like rich people. So I don't think like people here really care as much or maybe yeah. the people that do care are going downtown to have the protests. So nothing, I don't really see anything going on here on the north side. Like yesterday it was really... It's it's kind of like eerie the contrast between what's going on downtown which is literally like 20 minutes away from here not even and what's mm-hmm. going on here on the north side because I look I live you know like on the beach and stuff so um I'm looking out on the beach here and I see people like chilling and like they have their picnic blankets out and they're like you know just relaxing enjoying the weather and then I look on the on the internet and I see live streams of what's going on downtown 
And I see people like literally getting beat up by the police and, you know, people like, um, you know, just like protesting and stuff like that. So I was like that contrast between what I see over here and what's going on, like just 15, 20 minutes south from here. It's kind of, it was, it was very, it was very eerie to see that, but yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's how I feel like in Burbank right now. I'm like about 15 miles north of like downtown LA and that's where like shit's happening and you know, um, the police are like really out there right now and a lot of these protesters are just getting beat up and it's, it's rough truly, but, um, yeah, I don't... It helps, like, obviously I can't speak for black people, but I can speak, like, as a person of color uh, who comes from a South Asian background. I can speak from that perspective, and, like, as a person of color, that doesn't help me feel supported or, like, to have politicians not, like, back up, you know, like, what's going yeah. on in, like, lived experiences of black people. I'm sure it doesn't help black people feel, like comforted when they hear their politicians like not siding with um what's on the right side of history here too so like yeah we were like we were experiencing that in chicago as well and i think like Lori lightfoot gets a little bit more national coverage just because uh i don't know there's like all those memes that were going on um yeah and she like she partakes in that too so I feel like she gets a little bit more national coverage because of all of that. But yeah, even with even with the way she reacted yesterday, a lot of people were I was looking on Twitter. A lot of people were commenting on her live feed uh, when she came on and was literally was like criticizing uh, the people that were protesting and saying that, you know, like violence is never the answer and stuff like that, which like I understand, but also like people are angry like people are Mm -hmm. so mad so like I can totally understand and their anger is justified for me because like you know they like and it it wasn't all like violent protesting there was a lot of peaceful protesting going on too and they have like people were like recording it so they have video footage of them having peaceful protests and then as Mm -hmm. soon as the cops showed up that's when things got a little bit less peaceful like a little bit more violent per se so yeah you know there's like a lot of talk about how like police tend to instigate stuff too and also like i think police showing up with all these like weapons and stuff i think that also like incites some violence as well but like the way Lori lightfoot responded yesterday was so she put a curfew up at 9 p.m and she was yeah she was and it was like i don't know what time she announced that but it was like definitely pretty close to when the curfew was starting so yeah and like people that were protesting in downtown were trapped downtown because they had lifted the bridges up and police were not letting uh, people come in and out of downtown so you're setting up a curfew for 9 p.m which means that anyone who is out after that time period, police can pretty much do anything with. But then you're not, you're preventing these people from getting home because you're not even letting them leave downtown. So that's what a lot of people were criticizing that is like, okay, well, if you want us to obey this curfew, then let us go home. Like, why are we trapped here? You know? 
yeah that's crazy yeah it was kind of like a similar thing in LA because um like the mayor like shut off like metro service so like the buses the rails like that shit is like I think stopped at like 8 p.m or something like that like right around when like the curfew I think the curfew was like ours like 9 p.m too it's like dude why are you gonna like trap people there if like they don't have a way to get home like you know like what if people came in with the bus like what the fuck why are you doing this it's just it's really stupid honestly and it's like I think like overreacting to like you know obviously a situation that no one wants like no one wants people like burn shit down and loot and all that but but also like if we treated like police violence with like if politicians treated that with the same like concern that they treated people rioting and looting then this wouldn't even be a problem like but you know they're never going to say that yeah exactly and it's like I like I feel like it's more okay when uh because riots happen all the time Riots happen, and especially in Chicago, I can speak because I've lived here for the past six years. So I even in the six years I've lived here, I've seen so many riots happen. Every time the Blackhawks won a championship, uh, there were riots all over Chicago. When the Cubs won the World Series a few years back, uh, there was a huge riot that took place then to the point where, um, you know. Yeah, didn't people get, like, hurt? Yeah, people were actually getting, like, physically hurt, and there was, like, a lot of vandalism that occurred, and people were, like, lighting shit on fire, and, like, jumping up onto cars, and stuff like that, so it's, like, I think it's, like, okay when white people riot, but, like, when black people or people of color start to riot as an act of resistance, not even to celebrate a sports team winning, but just simply as an act of resistance to fight for basic human rights. Um, Uh I think like people tend to like be like, take that differently. They're like, Oh, they're rioting. Oh, they're being violent. Oh, like this is unacceptable. But like when white people riot, like, oh, it's like, oh, it's whatever, you know. Like, it's still addressed, totally. but I don't think it's addressed as the same as it is when, you know, people of color riot. So. Yeah. And when, like, white supremacists are out here, like, toting their guns and their, like, Nazi flags and Confederate flags, like, the police aren't, like, beating the shit out of them, like, miraculously, I guess maybe because they tote such huge AK-47s, but still, like, I think it's really just, like, blatant racism, and that's instilled in the uh, police forces. Otherwise, why would this be an issue nationwide? It just doesn't make any sense, you know? Like, this isn't just a coincidence of this keeps happening across the country, and I think, like, it's easier to act like it's a coincidence and act like these are like isolated incidents than it is to actually like address like the underlying problems that we have. And that's the really shitty thing because like, if you don't get to the root of this issue, then like people are always going to be unsafe um, when they're policed. I mean, 
when police presence is there. So and people are continuously going to riot and get pissed off, you know. This instant Rodney King, mm-hmm. um, yep. like all this this kind of rioting is just going to keep repeating itself. Like, if you really wanted to stop, then fix the fucking problem. Exactly. Like, it's really as simple as that. But, yeah, it's stupid, honestly. So, hopefully somewhere the right thing happens and this cop actually goes to jail for whatever third-degree murder is. But, um, like, I don't feel like it's going to fix everything, even if that does happen. But... At least it'd be a step in the right direction. Yeah, and even like that cop, and even the other, I think there were uh, three other cops that were also involved, or uh, I might be getting that number wrong, but yeah, like even the other cops that were involved in that and didn't step in and do something, I think that's like just as bad as the cop that had his knee over George Floyd's neck and murdered him. I think like that's just as bad. Like those cops that were bystanders and didn't like step in and do anything and take action and even like with this whole like argument that I hear people saying like okay but not all cops are bad cops and there are good cops out there and like I understand that and also like for me like you're a bad cop unless you come out and actively take a stance against this then Mm -hmm. you're, you're considered a bad cop to me because I feel like a good cop will come out and stand for this injustice, especially cops that are white, you know? Like, it's I, I've seen, like, cops of uh, that are people of color come out and take a stand on it, but I would really, really like to see more white cops come out and, and talk about this because if there are good co- cops are out there that people are claiming, then where are they right now? Why are they so silent right now? You know, like, this is the time... Yeah. We, this is the time to prove that you're a good cop. Like, if you're a good cop, come out and prove yourself right now and be an ally for black people, you know? Exactly. Yeah, I couldn't really say it better. It's just, like, um, you can't be on the defense constantly, and that's that's what they're doing. And when you're on the defense, if you're on the defense and you're, you care more about protecting what your career looks like, you know, you care about your badge so much that you will accept like racism and injustice and murder as being a part of that then you're not a good cop like regardless of whether you actually murdered someone if that's your greater concern is your sparkly clean image which i'm sorry but being a cop isn't really sparkly clean like i don't know when the last time that was, but I don't remember that being a thing. Um, But if that's what you're concerned about, then you're not doing it for the right reasons. And like, and you're one of them. Like if you care about defending them, then you're one of them. And if you care about questioning like, oh, well, you know, maybe we're not seeing what we're really seeing in that video. We need to hear their side of the story. Like, you're a fucking asshole. <laughs> like, you don't deserve to have a position and be paid by the taxpayers to, like, quote-unquote defend us. Right. Um, you just truly haven't, like, earned that. And, like, people like that just shouldn't be respected. They don't deserve it. Mm-hmm. So, 
yeah, it's it's honestly bullshit. But um, I wish we saw more people standing out um, and in support of um, of basically what the Black Lives Matter movement is, is trying to accomplish. But I think most cops are just going to get lost in the politics and end up trying to defend themselves more than than actually doing the right thing. So. Um, yeah, it sucks, but, yeah. but I see that a lot, and I even see, like, a lot of people that are, like, they call themselves, like, white allies, try to, like, give, like, the cops the benefit of the doubt, and, and that kind of stuff, and it's like, well, just, like, don't say you're an ally, then, if you're going to, like, question every little thing that, that happens, and, and try to take the side of the white person no matter what, unless it's just like, I don't know, if someone gets murdered right in front of your face, like, um, it's kind of ridiculous. Um, I think we've seen like so much of this bullshit even in like our lifetimes that I think people are genuinely just tired of it. And um, you're right, people are pissed and people have had enough and like, and I feel that, like, I may not be out there, like, rioting myself, but I feel why they're so fucking pissed, and right. I don't blame them. Yeah. Like, I'm mad, too. So, right. like, if I was, like, a black man, I'd be a hundred times more mad, probably. I can't even gauge how mad I would be and how scared and how, like, disappointed, so. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And, like, I think you said it really well, like, people... I think there's it's one thing to like it's great that people post on social media about it that is definitely like a step in the right direction and just posting something and resharing something on social media can do a lot in and of itself Uh, and also I think people should also take action like if you can't go out there and protest that's fine but then take some other type of action like do whatever you can uh in your own means like for example like i couldn't go out and protest but you know i still donated you know like made yeah. calls you know so and like post on social media and have these conversations with my family members who like you know just because i'm a person of color doesn't mean that like we can't be ra- like everyone's racist you know like because like I feel like to come from to live in a society that is rooted in racism you have like there's no way like everyone's not inherently racist so like even as like totally. even coming from like South Asian culture where tend to be like looked at as a model minority so then a lot of brown people like tend to think of themselves as like separate and like, oh, like, no, we're the model minority. We're not like them, you know? And then they they're, they practice prejudice and discrimination as well against black people too. So like, I think just having these conversations with my family members, like I had a conversation with my dad yesterday on the phone and he was like, you know what? Like, I'm really pissed that this cop like murdered this black guy. And it was so like, it was so unjust um that you know this cop just like would ignore george floyd's like 
he was basically pleading like he was like you know I can't breathe I can't breathe he like called out for his mom too and then other people were telling yeah. him too like hey can you check his pulse like the like people that were around that were witnessing and so like my dad was really angry he was like this this is bullshit like this cop just did not have like an idea of what like humanity is and having a have a respect for humanity and like for human life and I was like, yeah, I hear you. Uh, and then my dad was like, but don't you think like people are doing too much by like uh, being so violent with the protesting? And so then I had a conversation with my dad last night and I was like, listen, like by no means am I coming out and saying that violence is the right answer, but it is the answer right now because I don't think people are left with much of a choice. Because I feel like mm-hmm. people like peacefully protest as much as they can, but there comes yeah. a point, and like you can see this in history too, with riots that have happened as a part of civil rights movements in the past. Um, there comes a break. There's a breaking point for every uh, movement, you know. And I feel like this is the breaking point for people. Like how many, how many more black people have to die just for the color of their skin? for our government to realize that there needs to be action, you know? So I think, yeah. like, that's how I explained it to my dad. I was like, their anger is justified. You know, there's yeah. much, there's only so much peaceful protesting you can do uh, and how many more black people have to die um, until, like, action is taken. So that's that's where this anger is coming from. And, you know, I can I can see that. So my da- then my dad, like, understood. He was like, yeah, you know what? I, I get what you're saying. So, um, so, you know, like, yeah. I think just having those conversations too, like if you can't go out and protest, uh, there's ways you, there's so many other ways you can take part in, in it as well. Agreed. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of like, it's unfortunate that we're not much in a better place. Like we haven't really progressed much in terms of many racial issues since Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and so many more literally lost their lives because of the cause that they were standing for. Um, People don't realize like how much violence like was inflicted on people just standing up and Mm -hmm. saying that people of color deserve rights during that time and like how much we still are facing with the same issues today. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, on paper, black people can vote and go to the same schools as white people. But, like, when we've had all these ways to, like, systemically exclude black people from opportunities such as, like, I don't know, advancing to the middle class and, like, having good education opportunities and career opportunities and, like, so much more, like, even just living in a peaceful fucking neighborhood, like, how many communities do you know, like, in in cities that, like, are predominantly black and just are, like, heavily policed, known as being, like, very violent because, like, I don't know, gangs and other, um, like, honestly, like, pseudo-gangs or groups are the best form of, like, solidarity that a lot of people have 
um, because the police is a really shitty influence on communities, especially communities of color. So, like, but people don't think about it that way. They only, like, believe really what they see and, I don't know, the media or, like, what's fed to them, you know, like white people like myself don't try to see things other than outside of like their general worldview for the most part, because it's really hard to go from something that's comfortable to putting yourself into a situation that involves a lot of suffering. And like people just don't want to do it. They don't want to have that conversation. So um, when there's, you know, important issues that need to be addressed then the best way for people to do that I hate to say it is to light some shit on fire like and destroy some buildings it really is like name one successful movement where people just stood outside and held hands and like got something done it's literally never happened right like Stonewall was fucking riots and like that's succeeded um in getting you know gay people the right to go outside you know before all of that should happen like people like me were policed like I couldn't go outside with a partner without being arrested or like probably like being harassed or threatened or something like that and thanks to people rioting and mostly people of color rioting during that time like I have you know, the right to go outside and, like, live in peace. But I do acknowledge that, like, um, probably most, if not all, like, black men don't have the right to go outside without, with feeling a sense of peace. And, like, you know, I think this, you know, this obviously matters for black women, too. Um, Like, it's just an issue. (laughs) It sucks. And I'm sure that other communities of color also like experience similar issues of policing like I don't pretend I'm an expert on it but um but I know for sure this is something that white people don't fucking experience like yeah you may not like love getting pulled over and getting a ticket but like is the cop going to like kill you for it probably not if you're white right and like it's just such a horrible conversation, but it's really so important that this is addressed. Um, I mean, I don't know the best way to address it. I've been just like <laughs> do over all of the police departments, <laughs> but, um, but you know, like we need to figure out something like fire all the cops that like beat the shit and, and murder black people. Like don't give them like taxpayer dollars to represent themselves in court like mm-hmm. there's so many ways I feel like I'm just scratching the surface right. but it's bullshit honestly and people are tired and for good reason exactly exactly I think you made some like really good points on like where like just the history of it too and the history of protesting and the history of of riots that have occurred that you know have been successful and you know people were pushed again to a breaking point to do that. So, um, you know, I really appreciate you. Like I've known you for a while now and I feel like it's for me, it's like really hard to feel comfortable around white people just cause of like my history 
I grew up in a really like predominantly white neighborhood and you know I was like bullied by white people growing up um, called like a terrorist and stuff because I was raised Muslim um, so for that reason um, it's very hard for me to feel comfortable around white people but like with you I have never felt that discomfort because I feel like you are always willing to have these tough conversations you know like because it is tough like it's tough to talk about like your privilege it's tough to talk about these things but like you know it takes it takes a lot of humility and takes a lot of courage too to like talk about this stuff so I really appreciate you like always willing to have these tough conversations as well because like although we both definitely are not experts on anything we're discussing right now I think like a lot of change can be occurred if we have these discussions in the first place and I think like obviously action is what is needed but I think it also starts from just having these discussions because I feel like a lot of people just don't talk about it because it's uncomfortable and that's like that's the main thing I hear people saying right now is like oh like and it's like non-black people that I hear saying this they're like, oh, it's so um, it's so uncomfortable with all these like riots going on. Like, I'm so scared, like to go outside and like, um, you know, why is this happening? And it's like, OK, well, this is just a little taste. Like for me, it's mm-hmm. like I'm glad you feel uncomfortable, you know, because like this is just a little bit of a taste of what it's like to be a black person every day. Like, you know, and 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 even the uh, the discomfort that people are feeling right now is nothing compared to the discomfort that black people face every day for just being black, you know? So uh, for yeah. me, it's like, I'm glad you guys are feeling uncomfortable because like, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, totally. Like, I, I appreciate having these kind of conversations too because, I mean, I think it's just, it's, like, a responsibility that, like, every person has to, like, open their mind and try to be, um, you know, supportive of people that are different than them um, and, like, have different struggles. Like, it's not the time to, like, I don't know, beat your chest and, like, defend yourself and, like, call yourself the best white ally or whatever, you know, I think I see a lot of that attitude persisting, but it's really just not, in my view, very helpful. Mm -hmm. And I think like, more than talk, it's like, um, a lot of people's duty, especially like white people during this time to like, listen and like, do um, what's best uh to be supportive like you said like donating maybe um if you're compelled to go and protest like go do that um you know help in whatever way is going to be like productive and and helpful like not just kind of sit around and um make a bunch of comments on on social media because i agree with you that it's obviously like good to share um, posts and stuff like that but um, you know if you're just like having like a million like debates over like exactly like the best way to protest or whatever like I'm sorry that's like fucking stupid <laughs> like yeah. let's not talk about like how 
this way of protesting is good and this way is bad. When, like, the picture you're pointing to is, like, MLK and he fucking died for his cause. So, like, you know, kind of a moot point there, like, in my opinion. So, um, I think it's, like, just a lot of time wasted. And I agree with you. It's about, like, educating, you know, family members that may not um, be thinking about, like, these kind of issues. Like, um, I talked to my mom, and, like, she's totally, like, on the same page as me. Like, she's, like, not – she's always, like, felt really, like, strongly against, like, police brutality and and shit like that. Like, because she um, was actually – I believe she was interning in L.A. uh, during the time of, like, the Rodney King uh, riots in the 90s. Either that or she was, like, living around the area. My mom didn't live in L.A., but I think she lived, like, in Fullerton or something like that. So she was kind of, like, you know, she remembers those times and she remembers how awful they were. Just in, like, um, you know, there, there was, like, no justice for Rodney King and it was just absolutely terrible um so i i think that that obviously like kind of shaped some of her views um during that time but um but yeah i think it's important that like you know we all have like that white aunt or uncle or at least like in white families that's like well i don't know like maybe we shouldn't like be so soon to take like the Black Lives Matter side because, you know, Black Lives Matter is so violent and, and things like that. So it's about having those like really terrible Thanksgiving conversations, <laughs> which I'm always very happy to have. Like yeah. <laughs> my mom told me the other day, she's like, why do you always like allow like the um the Republican in the room to like say something stupid and you're just like, No, fuck you <laughs> and it'll be at like a family event. It's usually my stepdad who gets it. He like he knows that he'll like say something and that I'll say something back. So right. like I'm always like no. Like the other day I think I told him or like a couple of weeks ago, I was like, Well, you know, I really think you just don't like poor people and you like don't want them to have opportunities <laughs> and That's he was real. like call them out. Yeah. So I, I mean, like, obviously, I don't think that Republicans are like all bad people or whatever. But I do think that there's some policies that kind of need to be called out for what they are. Um, so yeah, I think it's like healthy to like have like uh, discussions about your views, especially if like you take such strong stances, like. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, if you're going to take strong stances, you can't expect no one to, like, come back at you ever. It's just not realistic. Right. So, like, challenge yourself to think about what you believe in constantly. That's what I think. Exactly, yeah. And, like, like I mentioned before, like, we are all inherently racist. So, there, I don't think, like... I don't think, like, you... So, you can either be racist or you can be anti-racist... And even if you are anti-racist, you still are racist, but you are doing active work to, you know, do what what you just mentioned is like, you know, learn more about what white privilege is and what you're, if you're not white um, and if you're non-black, take a look at what your privileges are too in just being non-black, you know? So like, I think, yeah. like, I think that's kind of like how I'm starting to look at things and... 
uh, the more I start to, there's a lot more I need to read about these topics, but you know, the little bit that I have studied so far, that's what I've learned is like, we're all racist. You know, we all were, and it's none of our fault that we're racist. We were just, you know, we were raised in a racist society that is rooted in racism and stuff. So like, that is, and that's what we've been taught, you know, our whole life, like from this, from this perspective. So it's not our fault that we are inherently racist, but it is our fault if we continue to not, you know, take, do the active work that is necessary to, to realize where this is coming from and then how we can, you know, um, support others too. So, yeah. yeah. Like no one doesn't see color. That's not a thing. Yeah. Like, <laughs> especially in America, like it just, it's not realistic. And, um, you know, everyone has prejudices and I think you're right. Everyone's racist and like, um, you either choose to just internalize that and be like, Oh, like, you know, that's not how I really feel. Like I'm not really afraid of walking down the street when like, um, a black man in a hoodie walks past me, like, I just am scared because I'm alone at night. That's that's the issue. Like, yeah. no, no, girl. <laughs> like, <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> um, something's going on, and you have to like recognize that yourself. I think it does take a lot of self awareness to like get to the point that you're like anti racist and like you're willing to call out like the things within yourself first, and then you're ready to talk to. Um, racist aunt karen and say like no actually like you know so um i think it's something that maybe we have like a little bit hope more hope for with like our generation and generation z i mean i don't really know the difference between like whether we're millennials or gen zers but whatever kind of in between i think um and and kind of being the the forefront of of change in that realm a little bit but I don't know um you know like you said it's something that we all kind of grow up with like um even if like a child has no ability to really like you know hear something and be like well that's racist because most kids aren't that smart um unless it's just something very blatant maybe it's like something that you know unfortunately people grow up with and are subjected to um and that's why it's so hard is because it's something that people have to like put in time to unlearn and like how many people do you really know that like want to and think that they have to unlearn those things it's like it's kind of an ego thing and kind of like a um well i'm not the problem like um you know that the white supremacist guy at the rally is the problem like yeah but you are too um, right. And I think a lot of people like see those things as mutually exclusive. Like if I'm yeah. racist, then I can't be a nice person. And I don't think yeah. those two things are as ex- as exclusive as we think they are. You know, I think like nice people can can and are still racist people, too. So, yeah, I, I think that's like another thing that like I, I've had to learn as well. And I'm still learning is that, you know, I can be a nice person. But that doesn't mean mm-hmm. that I'm not still racist. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think that's, like, something that, like, people need to grasp this idea 
is that, okay, like, let me put my ego aside for a second, which is hard for a lot of people to do, uh, which is hard for everyone to do. But like a lot of people, it's just like they don't they're not willing to put in that that work and that effort to put their ego aside and kind of sit with the discomfort of where this racism is like stemming from and coming from. So, yeah, I definitely like I want to do like more episodes about white privilege and stuff like that. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I think like that, that's, you know, that's something that I just really want to talk about and use this platform to discuss as well, especially with everything going on in the world. And, um, so yeah, maybe like, I'll just ask you, like, what does, what does like, when you hear the word white privilege, like, what does that bring up for you? Um, I guess like the first thing I think about is like, my own privilege, you know, like, growing up um, with, like, both parents had gone to college and gotten their degrees, um, and it's not like they obviously um, didn't have to, like, work for that and didn't have, like, their own struggles, and it's not like, you know, I didn't have my own struggles. That's not, like, what white privilege is. It's just the fact that um, you grow up um, and kind of even taking, like, removing class from it, I've never had to worry about, like, going somewhere, going out in public, and, like, someone was going to, like, make fun of me, treat me poorly, um, threaten me or harass me because of the color of my skin. Um, You know, whatever other struggles that you have in your life exist, like, outside of the, the realm of white privilege, but I think that that's really, like, the core is that um, no matter what other things are going on in your life, like, you know, you kind of have, it's kind of, I think, in a way, like, a sense of security for white people, like, knowing that no one is ever going to, um, like, treat them poorly or differently because of the color of their skin. Um, Now, I think that there are, like, a lot of ways that that obviously, like, um, you know, translates to uh, your experiences as, like, growing up as a white person. Um, Obviously, um, like, for me, I felt like, um, I felt like being a white person from, like, a, like, middle class kind of background that I was going to, you know, maybe one day go to college. Like, I didn't think that that was going to be something that was, like, completely off the table. Um, so I felt like I had, um, I don't want to say like, but I, I guess I will say, I, I felt like I kind of had like an easy path to getting to college because like white girl from the suburbs got good grades, always went to good schools. I was never really worried about that, you know? And, um, it is. I won't say, like, all white people, but I think most white people do get the privilege of growing up in a community and having access to, like, a decent education, at least, like, um, elementary, middle, to maybe even high school. Um, and because, I mean, just the reality is um, a lot of white people, maybe excluding people who grow up, like, in the rural, rural the parole communities, like, uh, grow up and, um, 
you know, in suburban neighborhoods and, um, you know, their parents, a lot of us have had opportunities to like get their degrees or succeed in their career. And in a way that, you know, other, uh, families have been left out, like, um, you know, uh, most white people in America, like I won't say all, but have, not been recent immigrants the country, you know, or a country of immigrants and everything. But um, for me, I can't really, like, date back to, like, when, like, my original family members, like, on either side of my family, like, immigrated to the U.S. have seriously no idea. Um, but, um, but you know, uh, and that's, that's the case, I think, for a lot of uh, white Americans, like, They'll say something generically like I'm Irish or I'm uh, German or British or something like that. And it will be like, you know, like, you know, their grandparents didn't necessarily immigrate um, or, or their parents. So it's just like based on that and based on like the acceptance that was given to like white immigrants over time, like there's been a lot more like opportunities for people to like build wealth and uh, succeed and, and things like that. And also just, um, white immigrants have been in in the U S treated historically with a lot less hurdles than other folks. Like number one, people like to, I I've heard white people talk about like, Oh, um, you know, white immigrants were indentured servants when they came over. Yeah. We're talking about something that happened like before, uh, the United States was even formed. Like, we're not talking about something that, like, uh, was pervasive. Like, that did happen, but it's, you can't classify it in the same way. Like, you can't compare that to slavery, number one. And um, you can't say that that caused the same hardships or generational hardships that, like, slavery has caused. Like, damages that have been done that literally, like, um, are still having to be undone. Um, So number one, like white people, I'll just say it, like didn't deal with slavery. We really haven't Um, to the same effect. (laughs) Like we haven't dealt with that in America. Um, And um, what else was I going to say? And then, you know, with, with other um, basic things, like, yes, if you look back to um, like their original waves of like, um, Irish and and German and Eastern European immigrants and, like, United States history, like, it's not to say that those immigrants, like, weren't treated, like, poorly and differently at that time, but, like, we're talking about stuff that was kind of erased over time, like, um, white immigrants were allowed to assimilate in a way that um, any immigrants of color have not been given those opportunities. Like, we've been having, like, immigrants come over from Asia and Latin America um, and, like, other parts of the world um, where you're, basically your skin isn't, like, white, uh, and they just haven't been uh, treated with that same, uh, like, opportunity to assimilate as white Americans um, have. And that's where you see some of the disparities, you know, that's... Um, where you see, like, generational disparities, you know, um, like, uh, when immigrants obviously aren't given, like, opportunities over generations, um, then, you know, 
people fall behind. Like, you know, maybe someone isn't able to buy a home and let their uh, children inherit it. Maybe, um, you know, someone isn't able to get their um, degree and uh, they can't succeed economically and, like, they can't give their children the opportunity to, like, go to the school and um, as easily get the degree and get the job that um, they strive to get. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't, like, outliers and, and like, a lot of people that have, like, succeeded, um, what was I going to say, like, succeeded um, in spite of, like, the um, barriers that they've had and, you know, people that have, like, obviously, like, overcome, like, poverty and, and struggles and things like that. Um, and like become really successful in their lives. Like obviously we all know of people that have done this, but I think that like what um, is important to note for white Americans is just that these struggles are a lot less pervasive because um, historically uh, white people have had the easy road, you know, like we haven't had to worry about um, whether we are going to be allowed to go um, and, like, apply for the job interview, um, you know, um, and just live our, live our daily lives, um, really, at the end of the day, um, because, you know, we've given the opportunities to, to truly be equals in this country and um, and I think that even today, um, unfortunately, that's just not where we are. Um, I don't think that um, it's right to say that America is um, what people call a post-racial society. Um, even if we've got passed like terrible laws that were discriminatory, and that's I feel like a whole other conversation. Um, you know, uh, even if some of those, like, laws on paper have gone away, uh, plenty of them haven't. And uh, and the reality is, um, like, there are so many things you can point to um, for just causing a lot of, like, racial tension and inequality in this country. Um, you know, the criminal justice system, the education system, um there are a lot of different, even the healthcare system, um, there are a lot of different ways. But I think that when people say, like, let's take, like, race out of the conversation, like, I don't know how you even begin to, like, unpack a lot of these, like, uh, disparities if race isn't, like, at really the forefront of that conversation. So, um Really long answer, but... <laughs> that was great. That was great. I really... Fundamentally, what I started with, I feel like, is what I've learned in school and what I've learned, like, um, in my life is kind of, like, the core of white privilege and, like, something that, like, all white people carry is is that. Right, exactly. No, I really, I really appreciate your answer and, you know, it was very thoughtful and insightful. So, yeah, and obviously it's, like, really tough, you know, to talk about things like this, too. So I really appreciate you taking the time to to share, you know. Um, 
And yeah, I think that's, I think it's really interesting too, because like, I know um, you studied political science at Loyola um, in your undergrad, and then now um, you work in politics now currently as well. So uh, I think that's also really interesting that you have this background in politics. And so I'm kind of interested to like hear some of your thoughts about like how you feel like your field in political science can play a role in some of the stuff we're discussing today too. Um, yeah, I think that obviously um, pol- policy is kind of at the forefront um, of, uh, of a lot of the, you know, institutional changes that uh, folks point to when they say that we need, um, you know, we need to do things better in this country. We need more equality. Like, fundamentally, a lot of that stuff comes from policy. Um, I think we, uh, there's a lot of ways you can be critical of the government, obviously, whether it's federal or local, but um, but you can't really accomplish a lot of uh, the changes that we need to make um, if we don't have policy changes. And that's like, kind of where I love and hate politics at the same time. But, um, but yeah, so I think, um, fundamentally, like one of the biggest issues that, um, we have like, you know, locally where I'm living in, in, um, Los Angeles and even like, like not federally, like nationally, I would say is, um, Criminal justice reform super important. Um, my boss actually um, was um, instrumental in championing bail reform for the state. Um, it's something that it sounds really so simple when you say it. Like if you're arrested for a crime, right? Um, I feel like you shouldn't have to pay um, any money to get out of jail that night, you know, um, aside from there are maybe situations where obviously like people should be held. Like if you're like the suspect of a mass murder, I think no one argues with that. Um, but, um, you shouldn't be, um, for a lot of these petty crimes, you know, there, there are so many examples of them. Um, we don't know whether someone has actually committed the crime at the at the time of the arrest. That's just the reality. That's um, a risk that we always deal with, and that's um, why we do have a a court system um, is to basically give someone that right to um, defend themselves. And um, and obviously, there's a lot of problems that go along with that. But um, just at the court issue, um, like the heart of, of bail reform is, is obviously like what you have in your wallet and um, whatever uh, is in your bank account shouldn't necessarily determine your fate. It shouldn't determine whether you sit in jail for the next week or you can go uh, walk free the very uh, next hour that you're put in jail because let's say you're, um, like a film producer like Harvey Weinstein and you can get out, you can afford your um, six-figure bail or whatever it is. Um, it's obviously just not, like, fair at um, at face value when, when you look at things that way. Um, so 
that's really the core of of the problem. And um, basically, what my boss and a lot of other activists um, in and and politicians in the state of California have tried to do is um, is create a system that um, works for. Um, basically works for the courts and works for criminal justice, um, but also eliminates cash bail. Um, obviously, one of the problems that comes with that, too, is cash bail is, is a, a revenue um, source for um, for different... Um, I think I'm going to botch this. I, I think it's a revenue source for local... Um, governments, like county um, court systems and things like that, that I would have to look that up because I think I may have forgotten it. Um, but obviously there's also a bail industry, which is one of the really huge problems. You know, all these local, um, some of these are actually like massive like chains of bail, um, bail bonds companies. Basically, whenever you go within a few blocks of a courthouse, you're just going to see like, bail bonds places everywhere um and those places make they make pretty good money and um and you'll hear um a lot of them say that they're kind of like mom and pop you know that it's like a small business and that may actually be the case for some of them but a lot of them are pretty big companies that are generating a lot of revenue over people going to jail um which I personally think should not be a revenue generator, Um, but it it is. And when you eliminate cash bail, you do kill an industry. Uh, You kill the bail industry. Um, So obviously, um, since uh, California has moved to eliminate cash bail, um, and the law was passed and signed by the governor in, I can't remember if it's, I think it may have been uh, 2018 that it was actually signed. Um, but the bill was introduced earlier than that. Um, since then, there's been a challenge, um, a political challenge. Basically, um, the bail bondsmen um, have come and introduced uh, a ballot initiative, and um, it will be on the ballot this um, fall in California to basically overturn the law that was passed. So um, this has put the law on hold um, because you can't... Um, you can't have a law in place, basically, when there's a, a ballot challenge. Um, so it's been put on hold. But what the Chief Justice of, of California has done in, in the state uh, Supreme Court has done is she's actually put um, basically a hold on cash bail because of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So right now, um, I think... I may be getting this wrong, but I think as as long as the state, uh, like, stay-at-home orders are basically in place, which we're kind of starting to move out of in California, I believe that cash bill is basically on hold. So um, no one will be, um, like, be forced to pay any bail during this time. Um, and she's taken some heat from it politically, like I've seen um, – Fox News and some other, um, you know, political pundits basically say that, oh, look at California. They're just trying to release all the criminals. And 
Um, no wonder crime is so bad in the state and, and no wonder, you know, people just go and they, they commit crimes over and over again because there's no punishment for it. And that's kind of like one of the core arguments for uh, bail proponents. Like this actually deters people from committing crimes if they're afraid that they will have to, um, you know, pay a a hefty sum or really like suffer financially um, from bail. Like they say it keeps people safer because it also keeps more dangerous people in jail, basically. Um, Well, really, that comes down to um, whether the dangerous people have any money um, or if their families have any money. Um, And that's that's kind of the inherent flaw in the argument. But regardless, it's still out there, you know, for for them, it's it's kind of like, well, what do we risk if we just release everyone? And in their view, there's there's really only one, one or the other. It's, it's bail or it's chaos. Um, but what actually, um, in place of bail, um, there's um, basically a uh, technology. I would have to look this up later because, like, I just I am blanking on the world word completely. Okay. But basically, it would allow. Um, and it's controversial, I will say, that there are advocates like for and against having a pretrial release system. Okay, I believe that's what it's called. Um, but it's controversial because um, it does in some cases incorporate like technology and um, in some cases gives like the judge in the court like some determination of whether they'll be able to basically like keep someone or um, in jail for longer because they're determined to be a risk. Like, let's say like you have someone who's maybe a repeat offender. Um, You have someone that's um, been in some trouble with the law before um, and is determined by that, uh, by that system and determined by, um, by the judge to be, pose a risk to the community, to public safety if they're released, then that person would not be eligible to be released um, and they would have to stay in jail until their trial. Um, and basically, if you're not determined to be um, a risk to public safety um, by, by the system and, and by the judge, then you'd be able to be released until um, you have your trial, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so where it's controversial is obviously it does um, put a lot of trust into um, that system. It puts trust into technology and it puts trust into the judge to make the right decision. And um, maybe for some people, um, they have a criminal like history and they're completely innocent of the crime that they've been arrested for. Like That's obviously a big risk. Um, even um, some criminal justice reform advocates have said that, um, you know, express like very valid concerns about there being a race, racial bias in the system and saying like, well, like if a person of color is arrested and um, let's say they, they have any kind of record, um, then maybe they'll be um, at a, a disadvantage, um, whereas maybe like a white person with the same record gets out of jail. Um, 
those are very valid arguments. And I know that um, there has been some uh, legislation to kind of address those concerns with, with the alternatives to bail reform um, or the alternatives to bail. Um, but all of that is like really still early in the works. And I believe that there's only like a couple of states in the United States already that have um, completely unlimited cash bail. So because it's so new, of like there are a lot of concerns with the new um, way of doing things and whether it's going to be better than the last. Um, so you have a lot of people saying, you know, on the criminal justice um, reform end that like, you know, cash bail is obviously not good for criminal justice advocates. Like, um, it kind of goes against the, the principles of, of, you know, people getting um, a fair shot, right? Um, but I think that there's just a lot of concern about doing things right, um, doing things the right way. And it's obviously hard to have that conversation when everything is so new. Um, and it's also hard to make compromises when you have a polarizing issue um, too. Like you you have um, a lot of people on the the public safety end um, that make the argument that, you know, we need to worry about keeping the peace and in their view, um, maybe something like bail keeps the peace better. I don't personally agree with it. I don't think it's the best, but you have people who do um, really lean that way. And then you have um, people who, you know, want to really overhaul the criminal justice system and um, they want to get rid of bail. They want to really get rid of a lot of um, charges that would put people in prison in the first place, such as drug charges. Um, and when you introduce a policy and it's like statewide or even federally is even more complicated in, in my opinion, like how do you kind of meet uh you kind of have to, not necessarily, I won't say like meet in the middle, but you have to not tip the scale too much um, and have people swarm and kill your policy. And that's what can happen really um, if you don't manage to get enough support um, from a large, large group of people. Um, that's, that's what you kind of need in these instances. So, um, yeah, obviously criminal justice reform is really important. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in terms of racial um, equality in, in this country, I think that um, really making significant and meaningful changes in our criminal justice system is going to be a good starting point. Um, I also don't know where this is at, but um, I learned recently that um, the governor of California wants to um, basically cut off funding for youth detention centers. Um, yeah, this is personally a, a, a topic that I'm not like super familiar and well versed in, but um, I have watched like, I don't even know, like a countless amount of documentaries on youth incarceration because I think it's for me, I think it's heartbreaking, um, and I think that um, 
it's something that seriously we need to rethink um, the sooner the better because, um, you know, I've, I've seen that, um, that it can really be uh, damaging for someone's, uh, basically for someone's future if, if they're incarcerated very young, if they are um, not given um, ample opportunities to basically, if, if you're a young person and you've, like, but when I say young person, if you're a minor, if you're under the age of 18 and you've done something wrong, like, let's say um, you've committed some sort of crime, if you're not given a proper opportunity to, like, rehabilitate rather than be punished for that crime um, harshly, I think that that's where we get into a lot of problems. And I think it's an issue that really needs to be um, addressed and um, rethought out. Um, I'm not an expert on this, of course, and um, I would say that obviously advocates and like the the mental health and the rehabilitation sphere are going to be much better at answering what the best thing to do for that question is. But I think that um, obviously when um, when minors are um, basically forced to um, pay the ultimate consequences for committing crimes that it can be um, understandably pretty damaging and, um, and it can really limit them from becoming ever becoming uh, productive members of society. Um, So, I mean, I actually, if you haven't seen it, I'd really recommend it. There's the Centoya Brown documentary on Netflix. Um, I believe that this originally was a documentary that came out like, I want to say like a decade ago or so. Um, but like that to me is, is a glaring example of someone who's just been failed and, um, been failed by, um, the system, quite frankly, of, uh, she was in a youth detention, uh, facility. So, so basically, um, she was in there for a while, and, and ultimately, she was still tried as an adult for her crime. And while it doesn't excuse the fact that she um, obviously did, like she she murdered somebody, um, or I wouldn't even use the word murdered. Actually, I would use the word she she killed somebody. But you know, she she was a kid that was um, a victim of. Uh, sex trafficking like she she was being abused and when you don't look at some of those big picture situations and you treat these like really these children as um as people that are like actively out there trying to commit um heinous crimes then you you run into some issues um that's not saying that, like, yeah, a 16-year-old or 17-year-old could make a big mistake and commit a huge crime. Um, that's obviously more than possible. But um, but I think that focusing on, like, the mental health and the rehabilitation aspect is going to be important. Um, I mean, like, 
our jails are overcrowded um, mm-hmm. throughout the country. They're overcrowded, especially here in California. I think that we have the most jails, um, the most prisons out of any state. Um, the United States definitely has more than other countries. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, clearly having more jails doesn't stop um, crimes from happening. Otherwise, right. Um, right. the United States would pretty much be crime-free, or it should be. <laughs> um, so uh, thinking about what does work is obviously really important. And I think that a way that that could be explored is for youth. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think that obviously rehabilitation rather than, in most cases, um, harsh punishment should be um, the goal. Like, um, I personally um, don't think that um, most people that are, uh, you know, substance users, uh, people that are addicted to drugs, um, should be put in jail for a really, really, really long time, um, unless there's them you know, some other horrible crime that they've committed um, in the midst of that. But I really, I think that drug crimes are something that we've focused on that really haven't given us any any resolution in this country. Like, um, it's, I think it causes a lot more heartache than it does um, peace to have people. I mean, we can get into a whole conversation about um the amount of people that have been incarcerated because of, you know, marijuana, it's, it's right. ridiculous and it's absurd. And um, I think that this is obviously a really important conversation to have, especially as um, states start to basically uh, legalize and accept the use of recreational marijuana. Right. Then obviously the justice aspect is a really important part of this conversation um, because it's really not okay to have, um, you know, dispensaries pop up on the street like boutiques like they have in L.A., for example, and have this be, you know, a part of our society now and have people that are still suffering the consequences of um, selling or purchasing marijuana when it was um, not legalized. I think that having um, some options for justice for those people. Although I personally believe that they shouldn't have ever gone away to jail for those kind of things. Um, I think having some um, routes to justice is is really important and getting their records expunged and things like that. Um, Because it's bullshit. It really is. Um, I don't have a better word for it than that. Um, But I I do think that... um, about the focus of, of policing and, um, and and sentencing for for drug crimes is something that um, needs to be addressed. Uh, you know, sentencing reform is huge, um, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be an easy issue. I'll go ahead and say that, um, and I think it's going to be something that takes time. But um, you know, as as the country. I do think that we'll probably see um, the United States uh, federally legalize marijuana at some point. I may be crazy for thinking that um, because I live in California. But um, 
I do think we'll see that in our lifetime. Um, so mm-hmm. as we move towards that point and, and that becomes more of a conversation that isn't crazy for people, I think that we have to um, open up the same uh, conversation of, um, well, why are we, you know, allowing people to still serve out sentences for for crimes related to marijuana and why are we... Um, you know, keeping so many people in prison for um, using and, and selling drugs, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I'm obviously excluding people that are, like, you know, cartel leaders, of course. I mean, it's, it's not like we necessarily have a lot of those people in our uh, United States uh, prison system, but um, but uh, obviously I think it's a, a conversation that needs to be had, and, um, you know, it's it's something that really needs, um, we need to strive towards. Yeah, definitely. I think like everything you said was, you know, just really insightful. And like, I don't really know much about politics. And I took like one political science class in undergrad. And so I don't really have much knowledge regarding politics and stuff. So I really appreciate you like sharing some of your experience working in that field, especially working in a country like California, um, which I feel like uh, a lot of people, uh, unless you are from California or familiar, a lot of people like myself are not too, um, you know, knowledgeable about the politics in California, especially. Um, so yeah, I really appreciate you sharing your experiences working in that field. And yeah, I think this like connects to everything we've been talking about too, is like even with um, drug crimes, you see black and brown people disproportionately arrested and charged and put into prison for petty drug drug crimes. And um, you know, like when statistically white people are just as likely or even more likely to engage in drug use and drug crime, but black and brown people are the ones that are um, doing the time and are more likely to be arrested and um, charged the maximum or the worst uh, amount of charges. So, um, so yeah, it's just like it all has to do with tying back to like what we were talking about before is like where white privilege and, um, you know, how our, how our legal institutions, even in politics, are so rooted in racism as well. Um, so yeah, I definitely, definitely see all these connections here between everything we've been discussing too. Totally. Um, and I think that that's a great point that you bring up. And I actually even think that that connects to the first question of, of white privilege. Like, you know, I grew up, um, in uh, a state and country, obviously, where um, marijuana was not legal. It wasn't legal um, where I live until I think it was maybe my 22nd birthday was the year that it was legalized. So obviously, you know, most of my teens and um, college years, it was still something that's illegal. And it's still illegal in many states. And never once did I feel like as a white teenager, if I try marijuana that um, I would end up facing like a jail sentence or any like trouble from the uh, criminal criminal justice system for trying marijuana. I never felt like that. It was like something that you 
heard that your grandparents tried in the 60s and 70s and they listened to their Jimi Hendrix or whatever. (laughs) So, like, that's growing up white with that privilege when, um, and you're right, that that communities of color, people of color who, um, you know, Obviously, they try marijuana, too, um, and they they try, you know, maybe some other drugs, too, um, just like everyone in this country, really. We can't deny that um, Americans like drugs. If, everyone if does they drugs. didn't, Yeah, pretty much. Um, uh, end of podcast. <laughs> That's it. Um, um, no, but, but you're right that... Um, that people of color do face the consequences for this in, in a, um, in a, uh, much deeper way, um, than, than obviously like white counterparts that are, um, doing the same exact things and, um, disproportionately, um, you know, given the benefit of the doubt when it comes to, uh, drug crimes and, and sentencing and things like that. So. I just wanted to say that's a good point. Yeah, exactly. Like, who's more likely to get caught up with weed, a white frat boy or a black person or a brown person, you know? So it's like, you know, (laughs) yeah, it's just, you got to point that out too, that like black and brown people, people of color, but especially when it comes to like petty drug crimes, Black and brown people especially, um, you know, are just more likely to get pulled over um, and, you know, charged and arrested for even just carrying small amounts of weed on them. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's just Yeah, like, like stop and frisk policies and, yeah. and things like that. So, yeah, you're right. It's You're a lot more likely um, than the, the, the white fat boy um, in his is fairies it's just not as likely um Uh, yeah yeah but um yeah thank you so much for having this conversation uh i think we had we talked about some really really insightful things today so i really appreciate you taking the time um you know to to talk about these things and yeah totally yeah yeah so i definitely want to do um, more episodes with you in the future maybe like we can talk more about um, we can get into more about like your work with politics or um, you know I know you're also identify as a, a member of the LGBTQ community as well so um, if you feel comfortable we can dive into some of your experience with that as well um, but yeah, yeah totally just, yeah appreciate you're you. actually like there for my like basically my coming out like all <laughs> through all like phases of it like yep. <laughs> honestly so there's like probably no one that I would be like more comfortable like talking about honestly like any a topic you you want to discuss with me I'm like more than happy to and I like totally support what you're doing and I'm excited to see this like grow for you and um yeah obviously you know I think you're an awesome human being and I think that you have like so much capabilities to give um back to the world and help people um so I do hope that what we have today is is helpful for you but I also want to offer like if there's anything else if I can um 
polish any of the points that I brought up today because obviously I was kind of like going off the cuff of what I've remembered. Um, I'm also happy to do that, um, but just let me know. And um, yeah, obviously um, we'll be in touch. um, But I agree that it was was a good uh, conversation, very like raw and kind of just felt so relevant to to have based on everything that's going on yeah yeah I think like we definitely uh kind of just talked like we kind of like freestyled a little bit with our conversation um but I feel like it was um that's what kind of added to this conversation as well that it was so raw and that it was um not scripted at all um yeah which is like what Personally, I've known you for like, what, five years now, and I feel like all of our conversations are exactly like this. So I definitely think that the material that we have for today would be, um, you know, great to put in an episode. And then if you want to discuss further, we can also do more episodes in the future where we have things like a little bit more polished off as well. Um, But yeah, yeah, just also. So I'm going to go ahead and stop the recording there because that's pretty much where our conversation regarding the podcast ended. Um, So thank you all very much. If you made it through the entire thing, thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. Um, You know, I noticed there was a lot more things that I wanted to bring up and talk about with Hannah, but I noticed that towards the end of the conversation, uh, my body and my spirit were was getting exhausted and you know that is completely normal and that is completely human Um, talking about these things is very important it is also very exhausting so please i urge you to take care of yourself Um, if you made it through the end of this episode please um, bring some mindfulness uh, to your life and to your awareness Um, please assess yourself for anything you need right now any sources of comfort Uh, Please allow yourself to feel compassion for yourself. And uh, if you want to learn more about self-compassion, you can listen to episode three, the one that was released right before this one. Um, And that is where I discuss more about self-compassion and um, how we can give that to ourselves. And I think that's very important for times times like these that we're living in. So... Again, thank you very uh, much for listening and supporting, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. I will also be including some resources for if you want to learn more about white privilege, um, if you are a white person and want to learn more about what that is and what you can do to take action and to help support um, people of color and uh, black people with uh, everything that is going on right now. I will also um, provide resources for if you want to read more and learn more about privileges as being a non-black person as well. So yes, that includes you, people of color um, that are not black. Um, So you also need to check your privilege and learn more. So I will also be including resources on my Instagram and in the episode notes uh, for this episode. And you can check those out. And I will also include a, um, a link to different places you can donate to if you uh, want to take action in the name of social justice and, um, you know, give back. Give what you can. So it doesn't have to be anything big, but uh, whatever, you, 
whatever you can give, um, please, please consider donating to some of these places that uh, I will be providing a link to that as well. As always, if you enjoy listening to Synergy Cast and want to follow on with us and continue on with us, I would love and extremely appreciate the support if you would follow us and sub- subscribe to Synergy Cast on whatever podcast medium that you use to listen to us. Uh, we are, there's some good news. We are now available on a few different podcast platforms. We are now available on Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and um, a few other podcast mediums as well, so and platforms as well. So please, you can support us by uh, subscribing or following us on whatever podcast platform that you choose and prefer and you can also support us by following us on instagram at synergycast